Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where there is no offseason. We talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this on the 14th day of August 2017 in the Sully Baseball studio in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager Bob Melvin and former Detroit Tigers pitcher Dan Petrie. It's been a wild crazy bananas bonkers weekend of baseball and of course there's that incredible series that just happened with the Red Sox and the Yankees now I'm going to be doing this this is going to be one of those weeks where I do multiple podcasts I'm going to have on Jason Keidel of WFAN and we're going to talk a little bit about the Red Sox and Yankees series and so this podcast will be a little bit light on that I will say it's you know, it, it it just one of the things that was amazing about the series that just transpired is that it truly illustrates the concept of there's you know momentum doesn't happen in baseball. You know, if there was emotional momentum that happened in that series, the Red Sox blowing that that first game where they were up three nothing, everything's wonderful, and all of a sudden, they, they, the bullpen absolutely collapses, and then they run themselves out of a rally. And you're like, oh, man, this, is, this just stinks. And then you're like, okay, well, that's all the momentum is going to go the Yankees' way. They pulled within three and a half games. And then the Red Sox, and they had their best pitcher, Severino, going. And the Red Sox clobber him. And say, so, oh, so the Red Sox are going to run into the next game where they throw their best pitcher, and the the Yankees are throwing some kid named Montgomery, and next thing you know, <laughs> they can't get out of their, you know, the, it turns into this wild game where it's two to one, and then the Red Sox tie it on the home run by Devers, and they leave Chapman in too long, and the Red Sox win in extra innings. So they wind up taking two out of three, which is really all you can really ask for, you know, in life, really, is to take two out of three. Now, remember, there was a period when the Red Sox took the lead in the division in late June. They went on a, they went on a great run, and then they kind of were slip-sliding. They couldn't get a streak together. And they fell half a game behind the Yankees. And as late as July 31st, remember that? The Red Sox were a, a game behind the Yankees going into baseball on the 31st day of July, the trade deadline. And the Yankees wound up getting their reinforcements. And everyone, including me, were thinking, man, the Red Sox, all they did was pick up a, a reliever, Addison Reed, so so far has stunk. And they've also picked up, uh, what's his name, Eduardo Nunez, who I was like, okay, that's cute. What the hell is that going to do for us? And since then, the Red Sox have played 12 games. They've played 12 games since then. And have won 10 of them. And they've gone from half a game out on July 31st to less than, you know, to two weeks later, they're up five and a half games. They've picked up six games in the standing in less than two weeks. And they've done this losing price basically for the season. You know, their their record has been, I mean, and 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 doing it with some 
you know, sometimes some borderline bananas managerial decision by John Farrell. And the Yankees, the minute they got all their their ducks in a row and they've got all of their you know, made all their acquisitions that they needed to have, that they made everyone go, oh man, they're the team to beat. They've they've lost only the Royals and the Astros have lost more games. This is just strange because you would think on paper that the Red Sox were going to go south and that the Yankees had figured it all out. And there is now the, the forget the division right now. And if I were, I'm not saying this just because I'm a Red Sox fan, I would honestly say to any Yankee fan right now, don't don't worry about what the Red Sox are doing. Yeah, they're five games out, and you know about a month and a half to play. And they have eight games head-to-head. Sure, that's great. They're only a game and a half ahead of the Angels, who are only half a game ahead of Minnesota. If the Yankees continue to play losing baseball, they could miss the postseason altogether. And Jonah Carey wrote something great. friend of the podcast, Jonah Carey, wrote a great piece on SI about the mediocrity of the American League is turning basically turning baseball into something, we're seeing something really amazing in the American League. And that is, like right now, the Toronto Blue Jays are, it's, it's, it's mid-August, okay? There's only a month and a half left to go in the season. And forget 500 ball, the Blue Jays aren't playing 480 ball. They're 56 and 61. By any metric, they are just playing out the string. And in the wild card race, only three teams are worse than them. The Tigers, who are totally out of it, the A's, and the White Sox, who are totally rebuilding. So by a win-loss record, the Blue Jays are the fourth worst team in the American League. And yet, they're only four games out of a playoff spot. And they have talent on that team that has been underachieving. They're 56-61. and 61. They're on pace for a losing season. And you've got one, two, three, four, five, six teams in front of them for the second wildcard spot. And yet, four games is not outlandish, especially when you take a look at the competition. Now, as I said right now, the Yankees are 61 and 55. The Angels are 61 and 58. Now, I have to address this. In one of my last podcasts, I took the Angels to the woodshed. I talked about what a disgrace it was that they were such underachievers, that they were wasting the great talent of Mike Trout, that this team couldn't even put a mediocre product on the field, and what a disgrace that was, and they got a clean house, and this is awful for baseball. I don't think they've lost a game since that podcast. You're welcome, Angels. I have to say, I did not see this coming especially going into Seattle, a team that I thought, well, actually it looks like they're putting their crap together and maybe the Mariners are going to be the team to get in and they swept the Mariners and right now the Angels, if the playoffs started today, the Angels would be in the playoffs. They're only a game and a half behind the Yankees to host the wild card game at this point. I mentioned Toronto because, by, as I said, by all standards, they're the fourth worst team in terms of win-loss record in the American League and they are right now five games under 500 in mid-August. And yet, 
the path for that team to get to the American League Championship Series is not outlandish. When you think about the teams they have to leapfrog, Texas, who traded away one of their big pitchers, you Darvish. Can you imagine if Texas trades you Darvish and makes the playoffs at the same time? That's not out of the realm of possibility. The Baltimore Orioles, who everybody, including your pal Sully, was kicking and screaming for them to trade everything that wasn't knocked down because they had to do a major rebuilding process, they're only two games back in the loss column of a playoff spot. Tampa Bay, who I thought, look at the way they can pitch and the way they've been hitting, man, they're probably going to be one of the teams. Well, they're on a tailspin right now. They've lost their last three games. This is a bad time to go on a three-game losing streak and even a worse time to go on a four-game losing streak like the Seattle Mariners. Meanwhile, Kansas City, who everyone thought we were going to be picking and cleaning their bones, they're only a game out of the playoffs, and Minnesota, who traded away Garcia a few weeks ago because they're in full rebuilding mode, are actually ahead of the Angels in the loss column. They don't have as many wins as the Angels, but they're percentage points behind the Angels for the final wildcard spot. And the Yankees, who right now would host the wildcard game, I don't know who's going to be one of their starting pitchers. They should probably get Ron Guidry back. Tanaka's hurt. You don't know what Sabathia is doing. I don't know who's starting today. Is it Sessa? I don't know. The kid Montgomery yesterday did a terrific job pitching inning for inning against Chris Sale, but are they going to, do they have to rely on that? What I'm saying is, if you tell me Toronto has a really good September, they could play, <clears throat> excuse me, five games better than all those teams I just mentioned. Because none of those teams I just mentioned are exactly world beaters. They're, none of them are <clears throat> the type of teams I can't even speak. None of them are the type of teams that you look at and go like, oh man, let me tell you, in a short series, you don't want to face blank. Who? Which one of those teams? All of those teams you can file under the, well, no one's expecting us to do anything, so we've got nothing to lose category. Some of them are in the, hey, this could be our last chance to win category, like Texas, like Baltimore, like Kansas City. And some of them are in the, hey, who would have guessed us? We got nothing to lose category. You throw Tampa Bay in that. You throw Minnesota in that. Then you have the Angels and the Yankees who are in the trying to play the no one believes in us, we're underdog cards, which is hard to do for teams that label themselves as New York and Los Angeles. So think that these are all mediocre, flawed teams. You compare this with the National League, this is what has been happening the last bunch of years. I've said this before, the National League has been very top-heavy. They have very good teams, and they have terrible teams. And you're seeing that play out. The American League is all bunched in. And there, in my humble opinion, there really are only two legitimate pennant contenders, two teams that I think could do damage in the World Series in the American League, and they're going to play each other in the Division Series. Uh, the Red Sox, hell, don't call me a homer. They've won uh, 10 of their last 12 games, and things are firing on all cylinders for the Red Sox. 
And Cleveland, despite some of their you know, recent toe stubbings, they're on a winning streak right now. Corey Kluber is pitching out of his mind. You know, they've made some good moves. They've made some good trades. They have a little chip on the shoulder after losing the World Series last year. And I personally think they're the only team that can honestly challenge the Los Angeles Dodgers in the World Series if that's who turns out to be the pennant winner, which right now it's tough to pick anyone other than L.A. Sorry, Washington. You know I'm rooting for you because I love me Mashawn Doolittle. The Red Sox and the Indians, I think, are the two best-equipped teams to win the pennant, one of them is not going to make the league championship series. Because you have the Houston Astros, who got off to such an amazing start that it has allowed them to, you know, basically cruise into home. The Red Sox are five games behind the Houston Astros. So it's, you know, they're not going to catch the Astros. It isn't going to happen. So the Astros are going to have the top seed in the American League and have the home field in the uh, division series against whomever they play in the, you know, whichever team wins the wild card. But, you know, here's the thing. Since the All-Star break, it hasn't been pretty for the Astros, I mean, the, the All-Star break, you know, okay, let's go July 9th. Actually, I'm going to take it for the weekend after the All-Star break. So after, let's say July 14th. That's when they, we came back from the All-Star game. And at that point, the Astros just were, I mean, they were 61 toward, they hadn't even lost 30 games yet. They were just, it was, they were making, absolutely doing laps around everyone. And it's like, man, this is the year the Astros are going to win it all. Well, they're 11 and 16 since. They've been outscored badly, and they've been losing. Their their starting pitching has been, you know, I mean, all right, they got a very good outing from Dallas Keuchel the other day, which is a drop to your knees and 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 thank everything above if you're an Astros fan. But McCullers is hurt. Keuchel has been up and down. You know, you got to deal with the Musgroves and the fires of the world, and I don't, I don't think. Any of them are, you know, the Brad Peacocks of the world are doing a, have had a good year so far, but none of them put fear in your heart. And all of the, you know, every, unless Keiko goes on a, you know, channels his Cy Young self, then the Astros are an incredibly vulnerable top seed. They could be one of those teams that wins 100 games and gets knocked out in the division series. That's happened a bunch. If you don't believe me, watch the movie Moneyball. It happens. And if any team is primed for that, it's the Astros who desperately need another starting pitcher. So think about what I'm saying about Toronto. I keep going back to Toronto because in, by all metrics, they're a team that should be trading everything away. Let's say they go on a tear. Let's say they make up, I don't know, two games the rest of this month. They pick up two games in the standings. They're going to be playing Tampa Bay later this evening. You know, they, they pick up a couple of games. The next thing you know, like, oh, they're part of the scrum. And they've gone from four games out to two games out going into September. And they somehow make up those two games in the 
month of September and find themselves in the wild card. You win one game. Wild card game is one game. It's impossible and stupid to try to predict the outcome of the wild card game because it's one game. You don't know. And so if they win that, they face Houston. Houston and Toronto, I think, are evenly matched. Despite the fact one is playing 615 ball and the other is playing 479 ball at this point, they're, to me, that's a coin toss, the way Houston's pitching. There is a not crazy. I'm not talking about a scenario like what happened with the Colorado Rockies at the end of the 2007 season, where they just won every game the last two weeks of the season, had to have a tremendous amount of bad luck fall on the Padres down the stretch, and win a wild one-game playoff to get into the postseason. I'm not talking about that's a once-in-a-generation event, what happened with Colorado that year. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about can Toronto play better than seven other mediocre teams over a six-week stretch and find themselves in a position where you can say, hey, if we get to the league championship series, that's a distinct possibility. That, that's, it's not a probability. Obviously, if Toronto is merely adequate the last month, they're too far behind to make up four games. But if they have a very good final month, and you're just asking about one month, then they can do it. And keeping that in mind, what does that mean for Minnesota, who's only half a game out? Kansas City, Seattle, Tampa, who are all Baltimore, who are all one good weekend away from jumping into the wildcard spot. There is nothing about this Yankees team, the way that they're playing right now, that makes me say, oh man, this is an unstoppable team. I mean, I'll get into the Yankees with a little more, um, I don't know, a little more uh, gusto than, uh, yeah, than, I am, than I will be able to today just because I'm going to have Jason Keitel on. We talk a little bit about the state of the Red Sox and the Yankees and everything going on there. But, you know... Aaron, the, the whole Aaron Judge winning the MVP thing is you're throwing that into the dumpster. I mean, since the home run derby, Aaron Judge is batting 165. He has a 330 slugging percentage. His OPS is under seven since the home run derby. He's had six extra base hits in the last 28 games. This is Judge. Now, this doesn't take away from the fact that he's had a wonderful year and he is going to cruise to the rookie of the year, but he, he's not a huge slugger anymore. He's vulnerable. Their pitching staff is vulnerable. I don't know if you know, it's Chapman sucks, so their ninth inning is vulnerable. And this is the team that's in the lead for the wild card at this point. And all of them could beat Houston. Boston or Cleveland will play a team that is right now a mediocre team for the chance to go to the World Series. And that's what's on the line for all of these teams. And I'm telling you, if I am one of those teams, I am looking at the waiver wire and seeing what players have snuck through the waiver wire that you can have as a post-July uh, 31st trade. And, and just if there is a hole, patch it up.
Patch it up right now. Because when you get to a game difference between this team or that, and you get to the final month, if you get to the final month and you're only back like one or two games, then it becomes less about your roster and more about, all right, it's almost at the point where it's chance. It's almost at the point where it's like, all right, well, we'll win this game, or let's see how we match up there. And that could be the difference between you having a totally forgettable year and being four wins away from the World Series. <laughs> you see the difference? Now, I'm loving this. I'm loving this partly because my team has the second-best record in the American League right now in a five-game in the loss column lead over the Yankees, and barring catastrophe, they're going to win the division. Now, I know those are famous last words, but do you know what? I saw this series against the Yankees. This does not look to me like a team that's going to make up five games. Granted, my Red Sox picked up six games in two weeks, and who knows, it could be a market correction. But the American League right now, if you're a Toronto or Texas fan and you've seen your team begin the rebuilding process, wake up. Show up to the game. We've had a few teams in the World Series over the last decade or so that have made it. They'd be like, wow, I was this team? Really? This is in the World Series? Yeah, yeah. And if any league is primed for a wackadoodle representative in the World Series, it's this year's American League. Because picture this, shall we? Let's say you're one of these wildcard teams that are either sub-500. The Mariners are a sub-500 team. Tampa, Baltimore, Texas, Toronto. These are all teams that are sub-500 in mid-August, and yet I'm going to show how they can go to the World Series. They have a good September. They make it to the wildcard game. They beat the other mediocre team in the wildcard. They face Houston. They catch a Houston team that can't pitch anymore. They face either Boston or Cleveland. Boston or Cleveland have played a five-game series where they have to use either Sale or Kluber in the do-or-die game. And they can't pitch Kluber or Sale three times in a best-of-seven series. The mediocre team faces them. They win game one. They lose both Sale or Kluber starts, but they neutralize in the other games, and they wind up winning a game seven. That's not crazy. And then they go, they play L.A., and they lose in four. It's not crazy what I'm saying. This is what baseball has wanted. This is what the NFL was for all these years. And all this, I had to always hear these football fans talk about one of the reasons why football is so much better than baseball is, well, any team can win. In baseball, the big market teams win every year, and the small market teams have no chance. But in the NFL, they're all bunched together, and any team can win. Now, if you look at who actually wins the Super Bowl versus who wins the World Series, there are a lot more different teams winning the World Series than there are the Super Bowl. You can look it up. But with that being said, this is what we've got. This is what they've wanted. All these years, this is what they've wanted. To have them all bunched together, and we're heading in to the final month of the year 
with everyone with a shot. And it goes back to something that I keep harping on. Now, of course, I'm transfixing something here, and I'm assuming that September is going to be as tight as November. Let me bring up this hypothetical, and I do it every year. And there's a reason I do it every year, because it's right. Picture yourself on a boat on a river. And while you're under those tangerine trees and that marmalade sky, you have your MLB.com app, and you're listening to your team down the stretch in August. At this point, all bunched together. Now imagine if this was the end of the season. If the season was 154 games and we moved it back, that the way the sports landscape is right now, college football hasn't started. The NFL is doing their preseason crap, but it's not yet the season. Kids are still out of school. The weather is still nice. It's still summer weather. And we have August be the time when you're looking up. And let's say, let's just imagine that down the stretch in September, you have all these teams are still in it, like Tampa or Seattle or Kansas City or whatever. And you go through the last few weeks of summer and say, hey, my team's still in it. They have a shot to win it all. Let's go to the ballpark when they have something to play for. Because in the end, isn't that the goal of a team? To tell their fans, of course the goal of the team should be, we're going to try to win the World Series. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But the goal of the team should also be, hey, let's try to win this. But let's at least give you a fun summer. Let's give you a reason to come to the ballpark. Let's give you something fun to root for in a summer day. That's really what it's about. When I was a kid growing up in Massachusetts, the Red Sox were never contenders. They contended uh, once when I was growing up in 81 in the second half of the season. But most years, they were out of it come September. And I never really thought any of those years they were going to win piddly-poo. I was kind of stunned in 86 when they won the division in the pennant. It hadn't occurred to me that it could happen. And yet, I used to love going to the games. They were winning. You had the outside chance of them winning something. But most of the time, I'm having fun rooting for my team. Say, are they going to win? Are they going to lose? Are they going to play spoiler? Whatever. That's what they should be aiming for. They've done the first part. We've seen mediocrity reign. Now let's get it with a month all to yourself. And that is what they should be aiming for. This is going to be a fun final six weeks, especially if no team picks up the ball and starts running with it. If everything remains mediocre and we see an 82 or 83, a bunch of 82, 83 teams win teams kind of all bunched together going to the final weekend of the season, because the wild card is not going to be a booby prize. It's not going to be a thanks for playing. You can get to the league championship series and the trip won't be that crazy. I want to bring another thing up before I go through the uh, team that should have won. Uh, the news of the sale of the Marlins to a group led by, supposedly led by Derek Jeter. I mean, who knows? I mean, Jeter, I mean, the uh, Bruce Sherman is the real leader of the group. 
He's the money manager. He's the Florida guy. But they need to, these groups have to have a famous person attached to it, just for whatever reason. I didn't remember sports ownership used to being like that, but, but teams are a lot more expensive now. Didn't Steinbrenner buy the Yankees for like $10 million or something like that? Today, that won't buy a utility infielder. So like the, the group that bought the Dodgers have to put Magic Johnson front and center in the group. Magic Johnson probably put up two packets of ketchup. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm sure Derek Jeter did not put up the majority of the $1.2 billion. He's the face that people will attach to. And, of course, there's a ton of transplanted New Yorkers living in Miami. And two of the most beloved Yankees, just in terms of, you know, Yankee fans of, who are my age, their guy was Don Mattingly. Yankee fans who are a little bit younger than me, their guy was Derek Jeter. And now they'll both be involved with them as they're trying to win over the Yankee fans and the local fans as well. There's going to be a huge honeymoon for Sherman and Jeter because they're not Jeffrey Loria. And there is that sense of Loria has been so reviled that there'll just be a sense of relief. I mean, I, I truly believe one of the reasons why – Loria is one of the reasons why – the team hasn't caught on. There's a sense of, you're just going to blow this team up. You suck. And even though they have a new stadium, with them, we don't want to go there. And, of course, the death of Jose Fernandez still looms over the team. But they have a superstar in Giancarlo Stanton. They have a stadium, so they don't have to worry about the stadium situation. And they live in Miami. Miami is, at least as a place to live, is a very easy sell for baseball players. And now they'll have Jeter, and now it won't have the stink of Loria on them. Now, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for the Marlins, and I really hope that their crazy rebuild in 2012 was going to work. I picked them to win the World Series that year. Whoops! That didn't work out. Loria's going to be gone. And now there's that great unknown. Now you're going to see how the Marlins will operate as a normal team, not as a team with a batshit crazy owner who doesn't really know, doesn't really seem to have much interest in putting a winning product in the field. I, I will say that I, I'm sure Jeffrey Loria wanted to win, and he seemed very happy when they won the World Series in 2003. But it's not been pretty since. And maybe some stability and maybe a sense of, hey, things will be different from now on, at least psychologically, even if it's a placebo might be what the doctor ordered, the proverbial doctor ordered for Miami and their fans. But one thing I will say, and I th those of you who've been following this program and this podcast in its many incarnation, this should not come as a surprise to you. There is a rumor that one of the things that the Jeter management will do is remove the home run statue in left center field. That crazy, bonkers, Jimmy Buffett creation of dancing Marlins that exists in left center field, and it goes dancing every time a home run is hit. Let me tell you something right here and right now, and I don't want anyone to fight me on this. They better not. They better not. They can't. I won't allow it.
because it's gaudy, it's ugly, it's bizarre, it sticks out like a sore thumb, but it also makes you realize, hey, I know I'm watching a Marlins game. There is no getting around the fact when you're watching a game in Marlins Park, you don't say, what park is this? Which park is, uh, has the teal and looks like the inside of a Malibu Barbie house and has the fish floating by in home plate, has that big statue going on in left center field? I've been saying this since a video that I made back in 2012, or was it 2011? I can't remember everything. I think it was 2011. And the Marlins have to understand that they are not the Yankees, despite all the Yankees they bring in there. They're not the Yankees. They're not buttoned down. Miami, despite all the New Yorkers who live there, is not New York. There has to be a sense of character and identity with the Marlins, and some of it may just be it's a little bit loco, it's a little bit colorful, it's a little bit gaudy, it's a little bit Miami. And I think baseball needs to embrace some of that. And they have to a degree with some of the crazy uniforms and everything, but I don't want to see what happened to the Astros happen to the Marlins. Where the Astros who played in a distinct, futuristic, crazy-looking dome with wild orange uniforms and everything like that be siphoned off to what's now, what is it, Minute Maid or Tropicana? Let's just call it Enron Field because that's what it first was called. That they went into Enron Field with this phony, baloney, nostalgia look with bricks and a train and a hill in center field and pinstripes and all this stuff that had nothing to do with the Astros being the team of the future. That's what they used to be, the team of the future with futuristic uniforms, futuristic grass, futuristic stadium, and then they become, no, we're an old-fashioned looking team. I do not want that to happen to the Marlins. The Marlins are not a team of tradition. They're not hearkening back to the days of looking through the knothole and after World War II, I loved me, my Marlins. No, they're a new team. They're playing in a weird stadium, and they've got weird stuff. I want the Marlins to be the weird franchise. I want them to be slightly off, slightly a little kooky. They're not buttoned down. They're not tradition-filled. They're not the Yankees, they're not the Cardinals, they're not the Tigers, they're not the Red Sox. They're not steeped in old school tradition. They're a new team playing in a weird stadium. And there has to be room for that in baseball. I missed that when we lost the Expos. I missed that when we lost the Kingdom and the Trident hats for the Mariners. The A's have to embrace that. They've got the crazy uniforms and all this. They have to embrace that when they get a new stadium, that it isn't an old-fashioned tradition-type stadium. Whatever happens to Tampa Bay, they have to embrace that they're, gonna be, that they're not a tradition-filled team, that they have a new kind of identity. I dig that about Arizona. As much as I hate the Diamondbacks' uniforms, and don't get me wrong, your pal Sully hates them. There's part of me that's glad that you have a team whose uniform changes oh, every hour on the hour and they've got a swimming pool in right center field. 
There's no attempt for the Arizona Diamondbacks to look like a traditional team. And the one positive thing I'll say about their god-awful uniforms is they are not traditional uniforms. What they're doing doesn't work. Just because it's not traditional doesn't mean it's good. And they're going to have to try a new uniform pretty soon. But I admire the fact that they, you know, baseball in Arizona is a little bit off. It's a little bit, it's a little bit out of sync. I dig that. And they have to maintain that in Florida. And part of that is keeping the statue there. Part of that is saying, man, they are kooky. They're weird. They have that weird statue going on, going crazy. The Mets understood that, that they aren't the traditional button-down team like the Yankees by having Mr. Met wandering around there and having that big apple come up from the magic hat when they hit a home run. They get that. Embrace your identity and don't try to make it something you're not. You can bring Jeter in, you can bring Yankee, you know, Yankee players in, you can keep Donning, Manningly hanging around, and that's all fine. But don't try to bring too much Yankeedom into Florida. That's not what the Miami Marlins are. Part of them is that statue and what it represents. I dig it, don't touch it. I mentioned the Astros early, and I figured now's as good a time as any to do the uh, Astros team that should have won. Man, you know, when I did the suffering index and tried to figure out which team has suffered the most and what fan base has suffered the most, the Astros of the current Major League franchises are second only to the Cleveland Indians. And the Astros, who have never won a World Series, have had so much heartbreak. Has been, they've lost so many games. There's so many teams they've had that have you know, lost extra inning marathons and walk, seen walk-off victories. And all these series that they've had that have just been gut punches. Right up until their most recent one in losing the, the division series to Kansas City in 2015 when they had a huge lead and were on the verge of, of eliminating them in game four only to have a complete, total meltdown. And, you know, the first time they, they tasted the postseason was the 1980 National League Championship Series, which was one of the great series in the history of baseball of which the final four games, it was a best of five back then, the final four games were extra innings. And in both games four and five, because the Astros took a two-game-to-one lead in the series, in both games four and five, the Astros were one swing away from winning the National League pennant over the Philadelphia Phillies. And, in all the, and once they were several runs up in the eighth inning with Nolan Ryan on the mound, and they couldn't pull it off. You had the great series against the New York Mets in 1986 where they had you know, Mike Scott pitching game one and game four. And they knew that if they stole a game somewhere along the way, they would have Mike Scott pitching game seven and go to the World Series. Well, they were winning in the bottom of the ninth of game three, and they let up the home run to Lenny Dykstra. They lost game five in extra innings, and then the 16-inning marathon, of which they had a three-run lead and blew it, and then had all those innings where if they just scored one run, game seven would have happened, and it never did.
the number of games that the Astros have lost that have been absolute gut punches is staggering, especially when you consider that they aren't a team that you necessarily think of in the traditional uh, long-suffering group. As there's so much prejudice in favor of teams that were not born in the expansion area. We think about the Cubs and the Indians, the Red Sox, the White Sox, all these long-term suffering fans. The Astros are right up there with any of them. They lost that amazing series to the St. Louis Cardinals in 2004, which include the walk-off home run by uh, Jim Edmonds. They lost in, in 1999, where they had a chance to, to take a two-game-to-one series and upset the Braves, and they lost a game in the 12th inning, partly because Walt Weiss made an amazing diving stop and threw the runner out. That if it just if the ball was a little bit to the right and eluding his glove, it would have knocked in the winning run. Instead, the Braves went on again, and the Astros, I bet you forgot that 99 team ever existed. The thing that I pointed out, the, the, the biggest example, and if I'm repeating myself, forgive me, I've done a lot of these, but the biggest example of the heartbreak that it is the Houston Astros is the fact that the greatest moment the single greatest, the pinnacle, the Mount Everest in the history of the Houston Astros took place in 2005. Their lone pennant, their one trip to the World Series ever in their entire history. Of all these years spanning back to 1962 when they were the Colt 45s, their only trip to the World Series was in 2005. And the only thing anyone remembers about their greatest achievement is not winning the pennant, isn't standing tall and, and having their greatest accomplishment. The only thing anyone remembers is Albert Pujols' home run off of Brad Lynch. They remember a game they lost in a series that they won. Albert Pujols hit that home run off of Brad Lynch. Everyone remembers that it was one of the most dramatic home runs anyone ever seen. The Cardinals were down to their final out. The place in Houston was going crazy, about to clinch, and Pujols hits that massive home run off of Brad Lynch. And they show that. That's a famous clip. You can't say Brad Lidge without thinking that, even though a few years later Brad Lidge clinched a World Series for the Phillies. And yet if I said Brad Lidge, chances are, unless you're a diehard Phillies fan, the first thing you're going to think about is the home run by Albert Pujols. And the Cardinals lost the next game. They lost the game. It's the series in six. And they got swept in the World Series. And it was a, and it was a misleading sweep because... The White Sox, you know, the last three games of that World Series included a walk-off home run in Game 2, a 14-inning marathon, yet another extra-inning marathon that the Astros lost where pitch after pitch they could have clinched the series or clinched the game, and then they lost the final game one nothing. The final three games were all razor thin. By the way, Brad Lidge lost two of those games. Razor thin. A bounce here, a bounce there, and that series would have been tied after four. But no, they got swept. And the only thing everyone remembers is the home run off of Lidge. The number of teams that they've had that could have won, that could have changed the entire outlook of the franchise is truly staggering. Now, because I am who I am, 
the teams that I found myself leaning towards were the 80 and 86 teams. And one of the reasons, and I alluded to it when I was talking about the Marlins, one of the reasons why I'm leaning towards them is because they had those bright orange uniforms that looked like a sunrise. We don't just root for a team, we root for a look. The image of those orange uniforms with the orange hats and all those things that you associate with the Astros, having a moment with that team jumping up and down winning the championship would have been pretty amazing. It would have changed the direction, the trajectory of the franchise and would have given that team the wonderful memory of seeing that team win with that identity, with that stadium, in the Astrodome, with those crazy uniforms. To win like that, it would have been similar to when the A's won with the bright green and yellow uniforms they had in the 70s or the great uniforms that the Pirates wore in the 70s. Winning, having an image where you can associate those crazy uniforms with victory, with that great moment that you've waited your whole life for. That's not something I throw in the garbage. That means something because it builds up your favorable memories of the team. And the way that they came so close. If they had gotten one more hit in 1980 in games four or five, they're in the World Series and chances are they beat the Royals. That's a distinct possibility. If the Astros had went on and they had won that game and they finally beat the Mets, would they have beaten the Red Sox? I actually don't know the answer to that. Why? Because I, I haven't yet pierced the fabric of reality and seen alternate universes for myself. But chances are if they had Mike Scott pitching in Game 7, he wouldn't be ready till Games 2 or 3. So I really lean towards those teams. And also that, you know, you, you look at the fact that the team in 1980 came so close, and that was also the same year that J.R. Richard had his stroke. If J.R. Richard doesn't have a stroke, the Astros win the World Series that year, in all probability. And you would have had the likes of, you know, Jose Cruz and Nolan Ryan and Cesar Cedeno and Joe Morgan, a lot of those players would have had a championship to their name. But that brings me to something that made it very difficult to pick that. And I found myself pointing towards another year, again, an unlikely year, because it's so associated with another team's world championship, and that's 1998. 1998, in terms of the win-loss record, I bet you didn't know this. Now, I don't know what their final win-loss record is going to be this year. It's probably going to be pretty dang high, even though they've been thoroughly mediocre since the All-Star break. They'll probably win 100 games this year. That will probably happen. Now, the highest total the Astros have ever won in their history is 102 games. And they did that in 1998. In 1998, we associate that year with the New York Yankees and what an amazing team they had. They faced the San Diego Padres in the World Series. And it was like the Astros' loss. It was a... Well, it was a deceptive sweep because the Padres actually held their own, but as it was, the Yankees just wound up winning every game. Why am I leaning towards that team? I'll tell you exactly why. I'm glad you asked. One of the things 
about that team. They had gone to a very boring uniform with this 90s font of Astros, but it wasn't yet script. They weren't being, they were not being faux old-fashioned. They still were trying the futuristic look with a different hat and a different font across their chest. It wasn't that interesting. It wasn't as cool as the orange, and they had abandoned orange and gone to a dark blue and gold, but at least they weren't trying to be you know, we're, we're a traditional franchise. They still were playing the, we're the team of the future. But the reason I'm leaning towards that team is this. When I started thinking about the teams that should have won, it isn't just about how the teams lost in the postseason. It was about the combination of players on that team that meant so much to the fan base, meant so much to the city, would mean so much to the identity of the, of the franchise. I mean, I go back to the Red Sox team I picked was 78, had Yaz and Rice and Fisk and Lynn and all these beloved Red Sox, Louis Tiant, Dwight Evans, Jerry Remy, all of them were together in this one team. When I was thinking about the team that I picked for the Atlanta Braves, it was a combination of the first group that made it into the postseason, the, the Justice, the Gant, the Deion Sanders, the Otis Nixons, the, even the Sid Breams and the Tommy Glavins, but also some of the ones who were part of the team that went on to win who weren't part of the first group, like Maddox, like McGriff, like Javi Lopez, and several other players like that. It was a combination of that combination of players who were on that team were the reason I said if they had won, that would have been the most beloved team of all time. And I'm looking at this 1998 team. Now, we've had Craig Biggio elected to the Hall of Fame. We also had Jeff Bagwell elected to the Hall of Fame recently. And they played together in many, many different times in the postseason. Why am I picking this one? I'm picking this one because they also had Randy Johnson on that team. Remember Randy Johnson had his amazing cameo with the Astros? He wound up pitching 11 games. He won 10 of them. He struck out 116 batters in 84 innings with a 1.28 ERA. He showed up. He was trying to win a ring with them, and you know you add a Hall of Famer to, that, to the bunch there. You also had Jose Lima on the team. I loved Jose Lima, the late Jose Lima. He was fun. He was cocky. He had a wonderful year that year. I, I love me my Lima. I love me my Lima time. You also had some other ones. Who, you know, Mike Hampton was good on that team. But you also had on that team, lest we forget, Billy Wagner. Now, Billy Wagner, is he had an unbelievable season as a closer. You know, he, he saved 30 games. He had a good ERA. He also struck out 97 batters in 60 innings. Billy Wagner should be getting Hall of Fame consideration. If we're going to consider, um, what's his doodle? The guy who did clinch the pennant that year, who was uh, Trevor Hoffman. Billy Wagner was all was as good of, if not better, than Trevor Hoffman, except in the save category. The only thing he had on him, on Hoffman, were the saves. Every other category, every other metric you can use is... Would would favor Wagner. He and he pitched eight years with the Astros, 
several years with the Mets, a couple years with the Phils, and you know, he got kicked around a little bit towards the end of his career. He never had seven-time All-Star, never had the signature postseason moment. And if he had the signature postseason moment of clinching a World Series, maybe people would be considering him more as a, or looking at his career a little closer as a Hall of Fame candidate. I'm not even saying I think he should be in the Hall of Fame, but he had the type of career that it's worth having a conversation about. He's been on the ballot the last two years. He can't crack 11%. So you have one one Hall of Famer making his cameo in Randy Johnson. You have another potential Hall of Famer there who would be getting consideration with the championship. There are two other Hall of Famers in Bagwell and Biggio, and some other really, you know, Moises Alou, who I love him as a player. I always love Alou as a player. Players like Richard Hidalgo, players like Brad Ausmus, players like Derek Bell. A bunch of these people had good, solid careers and everything, and Hamptons and everything like that. And you would also have, I liked having that combination of Hall of Famers or potential Hall of Famers on a team, and most importantly, you had Biggio and you'd have Bagwell. And granted, Biggio and Bagwell were on the 05 team. They were on the 04 team. They were on the team that lost the division series in 2001. Why of all these years you're picking this? The two reasons. 102 wins, best total in Astros history. Now, would they have gone up against the Yankees, who won, what, 114 games that year? Okay, yeah, it would have been tough, but it would have been 200-win teams. And the Yankees would have to face a team with an unbelievable starting pitching staff. Here's the other reason. It would have been in the Astrodome. That's the thing in Astros history that they played in, sure, talk crap about the Dome all you want. When it was open, it was the coolest thing anyone ever seen. Eighth wonder of the world. Changed everything. Whether you think you're changing it for the better or for the worse, that's a different conversation. But the Astros were associated with that stadium so closely. It was the Astrodome. They played on AstroTurf. That's a little bit of who they were. And there was never even a World Series game played there, despite some wonderful teams. And so with that in mind, even more so than celebrating the orange uniforms, which I loved, to celebrate the best winning team in the team's history with a collection of Hall of Famers, several who are in the Hall of Fame now and others would have gotten more Hall of Fame conversation had the 1998 Astros won the World Series. And that reason... Above all, that's why I'm saying the 98 Astros, that's the team that should have won. So, I've only got a few more of those left, so go to SullyBaseball.com, like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram, I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Keep keep refreshing your feed here, because I'm going to be posting a few this week. Uh, And I'm going to make sure to end this episode as awkwardly as possible. This has been Sully Baseball, recorded on the 14th day of August 2017. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Do you know what? You can call me Sully.